for you in just a minute. I gotta go make myself look pretty for you, don't I? Hmm? This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim Thiessen, and unfortunately Tom Jennings isn't here to join us today, but I have with me Eric Tevins. Thank you so much for joining me, Eric. Oh, thank you. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. The first time I heard you, I heard that you hated long movies. So that was my kind of my first introduction to your personality. <laughs> <laughs> Hate is a strong word. Okay. I just, I, I often think that, listen, there are some truly phenomenal long movies. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Seven Samurai or A Brighter Summer Day are not fully worthy of their running time. I just... Uh, don't like the sort of movement towards length as a substitute for quality. Mm-hmm. And so my thing is always if, if, if Ingmar Bergman could make all of his masterpieces in 90 minutes, you really need to justify to me why you need, you know, four hours. And a lot of modern movies, I think, completely fail to do that. And they're just overburdened by their running time. So mm-hmm. that, you know, if you if you have a really good reason or you're a Kira Kurosawa, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna let you get away with it. But okay. <laughs> I just think it's become you know, movie fans, like, you know, discs will come out and people will say, oh, that movie's only 60 minutes long. How are they charging this price? And it's like, wow, you are completely missing the point. Mm. That was actually uh, an interesting discussion when that, um, uh, what was that documentary that came out on Criterion? Uh, the one about um, the Holocaust. Night uh, and Fog. Yes, exactly. That's actually pretty much the best example, right? That's, I, you know, I, I showed that to my girlfriend. It's, what, 30-something minutes long? And, mm. and she was just like, that is the absolute longest I could have had that movie be and she was <laughs> obviously blown away and, and all that but it's a very intense documentary right mm-hmm. obviously yeah and uh, and I, I don't mind that they are charging like a full uh, full price uh, for uh, in terms of uh, usually they would have charged uh, is it $30 retail um, for films yeah, that are, cheaper price. yeah exactly uh, but this is like a, a full on price but I don't in terms of that movie, uh, I don't mind it, seeing as they have such a extensive supplemental package for that one, and it is such an important film. So, yeah, I think that the, that's the better way to look at it is that they justify the price point based on the supplements. Now, that doesn't always work out too because sometimes they'll put out a sort of semi bare bones one at that higher mm-hmm. price. But usually, if it's, if it's really bare bones, it does go down to that that thirty dollar price point. And I think that's a more reasonable way to look at it. I still don't care because for me, the the film is like you said so. Even if it had no supplements, it's just such an important thing. And and I, you know, if they if they want to just release the longest movies possible, they they could do that. But then I would be stuck with you know every Transformers movie on, <laughs> on Criterion. And I don't think anyone would be that <laughs> excited about that. True, uh, we have enough pay in the collection. <laughs> but for uh, listeners who aren't maybe as familiar with you, uh, could you sort of introduce yourself. Um, you started off uh, as Cinema Gadfly in my eyes, and now you become this jazz historian but uh, kind of give us an introduction to yourself yeah that's actually that's a great introduction uh (laughs) so um yeah so i got into this i sort of fell into the podcast thing kind of a bit accidentally actually i um i started a a blog initially Mm. when that was a thing uh, which I'm uh, still doing, um, and it's also called Cinema Gadfly. And the blog was my attempt to watch every film in the Criterion Collection and write something about it. Uh, and I, I say that on purpose. I'm not reviewing movies. I, I don't really see the point in reviewing something mm-hmm. like Seven Samurai. It's like really, what am I gonna, what am I gonna add there? Yeah. You know, I think, I think generations of movie critics have covered <laughs> that. But um, I just wanted to write something about how I felt about each of the movies I saw because mainly, honestly, initially for myself um, so that I would remember what I thought. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I first started, I was like, oh, I bet I bet I'm the first person to think of doing this. No, I was pretty sure there were going to be <laughs> other people doing it, but I was really curious about that. And there were. And I started to get to know some of them. And uh, one of them is a guy that I think you're quite familiar with named David Blakesley, mm-hmm. who um, writes the Criterion Reflections blog and is also involved with the Criterion cast and is just an all around wonderful fellow. Mm-hmm. And at some point he said, hey, um, I'm writing about or I've gotten up to uh, blow up the Antonioni film in my chronology. This was, of course, long before Criterion had announced they were going to release it on Blu-ray, but they'd already released it on Laserdisc. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, I don't feel like I want to. Uh, write about this one. I'd like to just do a podcast episode. Is there anyone out there 
who would do it with me. And, uh, you know, I knew him a little bit from just kind of being part of the same kind of club of weird people who write about criterions obsessively. <laughs> and so I said, oh, I'd do it. And he said, sure. So we did that. That's on his website. And that was my first ever podcast of any kind. It was it, the audio quality for me is is truly terrible. <laughs> uh, but but I had a really great time. So I uh, after that, I started thinking, like, you know, what is there something I could do? What would I do? You know, I didn't want to do sort of another there's a lot of podcasts out there where they're just sort of watching through the collection and, and different things that I didn't really want to do anything like that. So um, what I ended up doing was that uh, I, I, you know, I watch all these movies and I can talk about them online with people like you and, and, and David and whoever, but I don't get to talk about them much with friends of mine or people I know because, uh, you know, most people don't watch these movies anymore, yeah. unfortunately, sadly. Hmm. So I thought, okay, I, I'll, I'll, convince friends of mine to watch Criterion movies and then they'll have to talk to me by inviting them to be on a podcast where I make them watch a Criterion movie and then they can make me watch any movie they want, which was sort of like the, it's like a carrot kind of thing, right? <laughs> like I'll, I'll bait them into doing this. And so I did that for about a year uh, and, uh, and it was a ton of fun. Um, and so that was the Cinema Gadfly podcast. And then uh, it, it is really, really fun, but it's also uh, quite a lot of work. At some point, I I started be doing that as part of Criterion Cast as well. Ryan Gallagher invited me to um, join the network and and do it under their feed, which was wonderful. Hmm. Uh, so I did, like I said, I did that for about a year, and and it just got very stressful. Uh, mainly with the I'm sure you know, mainly with the scheduling. Mm-hmm. It is was that a weekly? Quite thing a lot of work to schedule, and every month it was someone different, right? So it was just a lot of. Uh, arranging and, and trying to find the time and stuff like that. So I kind of decided I was going to go on on a, a hiatus with that. Um, and then around that same time, so I'm I don't know what you listen to in, in podcasts outside of your own, but I'm a, a huge fan of history podcasts. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, for me. I just find that uh, it's a really really great format for learning about history because I can just listen to someone if they're you have to find someone who who does a good job of telling a story, they can be very dry and very boring. But if you mm. find someone who's engaging and interested in their material, it's a really nice way to just walk around and kind of hear someone telling you a story about something. So mm-hmm. over the last like year or two, I've gotten quite into a lot of uh, history-related podcasts. And so, uh, you know, I thought to myself, oh, okay, I maybe I want to do that. That seems like a fun thing to do. And then it was sort of like, well, what do I know anything about or what might I want to learn enough about to be an expert in? You know, I've always had a um, a love for jazz and an interest in jazz. Hmm. Uh, uh, my dad's a, an amateur jazz musician. I took classes in jazz and jazz history in, in university and things like that. But um, I certainly was not enough of an expert to do a show. Uh, and and actually, the show came about because I jokingly said to a friend who sells podcast advertising, uh, "There's no good podcast to do left. I mean, anything you can imagine, say that the, a history of jazz. There's probably." 50 podcasts already doing it and then I did a little search for that and there were zero podcasts doing it <laughs> <laughs> and I and I know why now <laughs> after, after doing it for a while okay uh, and the reason there there's two main reasons number one it's unbelievably difficult <laughs> the second reason is I don't know that you can make any money right because you're yeah you, you kind of have to be in that educational gray area with the music and stuff so, <laughs> so exactly. it's a terrible idea but um yeah so i <laughs> so yeah i do my a uh, podcast called the history of jazz now and we're um i think there's i've released the first three episodes so far and i'm going chronologically through the through the history of jazz starting in uh 1917 well really starting i think i started in 1619 and then mm-hmm. now we're up to we're about to start 1918 so i'm ready up to my second you know, year of the show. So it's great. Blazing but fast yeah. Past, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there isn't a lot to talk about in the early days. You know, it'll, it'll become when we get into the twenties and thirties, it'll be, you know, forever on one year and things. Mm. I remember I watched, uh, Ken Burns' uh, jazz documentary, uh, that miniseries, 10 part miniseries. Uh, I think that was, uh, must've been about 12 years ago or something. But I remember being utterly fascinated with uh, Buddy Bolden and his kind mm-hmm. of story, uh, mm-hmm. and just how tragic that that life was, really. Yeah, he he's a, there's a, there are unfortunately there's quite a lot of tragic life stories yeah. in jazz. Um, 
yeah, I think probably musicians in general, you know, especially a long time ago when even if you were quite successful for a while, you were you weren't making the kind of money that would allow you to be secure after the ended, right? Mm. But especially with someone like Bolden, who was you know was so early, yeah, absolutely uh, tragic. You know, the the, the Ken Burns uh, documentary is definitely one of the reasons I wanted to do the show. Mm. Um, I was also a big fan of that documentary at one point, but um, over the years, I've sort of found more and more not to like about the documentary. Okay, interesting. <laughs> um, well, uh, just in terms of they don't play a lot of music. Yeah, uh, that's true. And and probably that's for legal reasons, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that that was intentional, but they don't play a lot of music, which I think if you're going to teach the history of a music is a little bit a uh, problem. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is that they, they, they kind of have a very strict narrative structure where a few people matter and and at a, at a certain time period matters. And I think they get bogged down in that. And mm. like, you know, it, it, it tends to be like a parade of names that you're supposed to have heard of. Mm-hmm. And I think you miss a lot of like Buddy Bolden is a great example where that he made it into the sort of canon of people you're supposed to learn about. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, about the story and you were fascinated by it. But um, the, the next episode I'm doing on my podcast is about a guy named Wilbur Sweatman. And I think there's a, a ton of interesting things to learn about him. But he's not well known today, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's, his name has kind of dropped out. He was incredibly successful for about maybe a little bit less than 10 years from like 19, well, in jazz from like 1917 to somewhere in the mid twenties. But even before that, he was quite successful and he's, he's got a fascinating life story and you don't know anything about him. Right. Yeah. So, exactly. <laughs> um, so I think it's a, a nice opportunity to talk about people that, I mean, don't get me wrong. I will be talking about Louis Armstrong and, you know, Miles Davis and John Coltrane. They're mm-hmm. all wonderful and well worth talking about, of course, but it, the podcast format allows me to talk about a lot of things that don't fit into a, a, a limited length documentary. Exactly. Yeah, because that was what I was going to mention that obviously you are, uh, you have the, lim- or you don't have the limitation of a certain number of episodes. So you are able to take that opportunity to kind of nuance things and go down these uh, paths that don't really go down to the popular artists that we know today so yeah it's really exciting and then i get to learn about these people you mm-hmm. know so um you know i find out about someone you know right now it's a little tricky because a lot of the i don't know if you listen to the most recent episode but there's a lot of people mm-hmm. where you just don't know we, we know so little about them yeah you know and so that that's sort of been interesting trying to figure out a way to keep it interesting and stuff like that but yeah i'm just loving learning about it mm. and also interesting that sort of the the things we know that is also from a certain perspective as you mentioned in that episode that it is a certain narrative that has been pushed forward um and it's also interesting listening to you kind of uh, break away from that narrative and trying to look at it in an alternative way mm, thank uh, you yeah talking about jazz that certainly makes a transition over to Cassavetes because he has a strong relationship with jazz music um even on his first film shadows where he worked with one of the leading artists within free jazz and bebop charles mingus yes yeah i love that film shadows and the soundtrack is amazing actually charles mingus is one of my uh, all-time uh, favorite jazz musicians so mm-hmm. yes absolutely yeah um I'm, i love his music so much and he's kind of another artist that is known for his non-compromising nature and kind of that improvisational loose style that we know and love from Casavetes himself. So absolutely. Yeah. The, the, I could see them being quite, quite either, either very good friends or hate each other. Right? That's usually <laughs> the way that sort of thing works. How familiar are you with, uh, Casavetes's films? Uh, medium. I, you know, I've seen several, mm-hmm. I, I, I quite like them. I am working my way through the, uh, the box that the criterion put out. Okay. Um, and I'm I'm quite a fan, but I I have not seen all of them for for sure. Mm. I think um, I'm not all too familiar with his works. Uh, I remember when I was I think 17 or 18, um, there was a Swedish channel that ran a Casavetti's marathon uh, of sorts. And uh, from what I remember, I think Shadows and Faces were the two films that I saw. And I do remember that they were very different from what I was used to at that point with the kind of gritty um, lo-fi approach uh, to some extremely like delicate human dramas and I was definitely taken but I never really went further but I really want to pick up that Criterion box um, at some point it is uh, quite an expensive uh, 
expenditure. So. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. Um, try to get it on one of the uh, the sales or something, but yeah, um, yeah. The the fascinating thing about sort of the <clears throat> shadows and then two late blues is that uh, they were not very far apart, right? And so two years, uh, I think. Yeah. And, and to see, uh, you know, you've seen shadows. So to see the massive jump in sort of quality, mm. um, I mean, I, I really like shadows, but it is a very, it's a rough, uh, film. rough film. Yeah. It, there's a lot to love, but it is, the acting is very amateur. I mean, two late blues was literally his second film. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's pretty incredible. Like he made a massive, massive qualitative leap in, in, in just those two years and, and, and one film mm. pretty incredible. Absolutely. And this is also his first film for a major studio, uh, one of two films um, that he made uh, with Paramount. And this film, it kind of deals with um, a sort of alias, I would say, to his own personality, where you have this character who is struggling, working within a studio, wanting to do it in his own style, but don't really want to follow suit and do what the studio wants him to do. And you also have this agent character who wants him to compromise and go for the money and goes to is kind of um, hard-headed. He refuses, uh, leading Benny to kind of want to destroy him, uh, sort of. But it is an yeah. interesting parallel there. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me that this is his first studio film <laughs> he's already <laughs> dealing with those issues <laughs> <laughs> he's already just i think he might have gotten a little ahead of himself a little bit there <laughs> i think it seems like he was uh he knew what he was getting into and yet he tempted fate sort of <laughs> yeah in some some in some ways similar to ghost in the film i mean he almost like crafted his own narrative and then lived his own <laughs> narrative he i don't know if there was a um a jess polanski uh uh related character in his life at that time but he you know it, it is it is quite fascinating you know it's it very much i mean you can see the you can watch the film as purely an, a, an entertaining film and you can see it as you know maybe talking about the artist's lament as well but specifically when you know that that his history and, and at that time and kind of where he was coming from mm-hmm. it does kind of make make it make even more sense i i wonder you know is benny the entire studio system is benny a specific executive of paramount those kind of things would be fun to mm. to learn but yeah, it's it, you know, and he also kind of uh, predicted his own destruction in a way, right? Which yeah. is, <laughs> it is true. <laughs> I mean, that the theme about the independence and the price you pay for being under a studio, it is something that he felt uh, even during this uh, shooting of the film, where he wanted to shoot the film in New York over a six-month period, but the studio pressured him to do it in thirty days, and in California, so already there. I mean, his his way of working would be vastly different from what he was used to and what he envisioned, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's a crazy... That's not like, oh, we're a little bit apart here. No, no, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> he wanted it six times longer. <laughs> uh, I will say, though, that in in some cases, I'm not sure that I agree with his choices. I think I agree with the studio's choices. Specifically, uh, I know that he wanted, he wanted Montgomery Clift and Gina Rollins. Mm-hmm for the two main roles. And I think that would be a shame. I, I actually think that Stella Stevens for one thing was incredible. She's a revelation. But yeah. She's absolutely amazing. I, I was you know Googling her and things like that. Um, <laughs> be careful if you do, cause <laughs> <laughs> it might get some not safe for work content, but, yeah. <laughs> but, and Bobby Darren as well, just, I really can't, can't see anyone else playing that part. I certainly cannot see Montgomery Clift playing that part. Okay, uh, I think we have, um, or my views on Bobby Darren's work is less enthusiastic, I think, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we'll get to that. Um, but I want to cover kind of Cassavetes first and where he is in the movie, because like from, from what I remember and what I understand of Cassavetes' style, there is still much of him in Too Late Blues in terms of uh, especially the characters where you have these motivations that we have to we have to invest in order to discover what really drives the characters and they don't necessarily do much to make us like them I think 
<laughs> That's I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's sort of there's naturally sort of likable characters. I, Ghost is not one of them. No. <laughs> not really likable at all. Um, but so we can maybe we'll agree on that point. But I, I felt like, uh, you know, uh, the the Stella Stevens, Jess Polanski, the the love interest character. Um, I think she she did some things that at least made me I, like is a weird way to say it. Uh, connect with what she was kind of going through and. And things like that, and then, but I would say, but I, I mean, you're absolutely right. The people I, the characters I probably liked the most in the movie were the drunk Greek bartender guy, <laughs> Nick <laughs> Bubulapus or something, Nick, Nick Bubulinus, yeah. <laughs> and the, um, the one guy from his band, the one that that ended up uh, kind of sleeping with his his girl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's a charming fella. <laughs> he is. He really. Is. <laughs> so that's not necessarily a great sign. <laughs> But it seems like he, also in just in terms of the technical qualities of the film, he didn't veer away uh, from his regular directing style that we see in no, his not. later works as well. Where you have like, no, it, there's a no flash approach to the film. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's very, uh, it's I mean it's beautiful mm-hmm. in certain cases. Uh, there are some shots in this film that I th- I even took note of like you know, for talking about on this, on this, uh, conversation today, like, there are some really beautiful moments. And I think that's pretty common. He has a really, uh, interesting use of no pun intended with his first film, but shadows and, yeah. uh, and light and things like that. And, and he has a really, yeah, uh, it's like a stripped down style, but it still feels very beautiful. It, it's like the essence of whatever he's trying to, to film, but without veering into like, I'm trying to distract you from what is happening mm. right like it can go you can get directors who are uh, so interested in the composition of the shot that it actually distracts from whatever's happening in the shot and i don't think that that happens here but it like is like la la land for example interesting comparison <laughs> there so there's a lot of interesting comparisons i feel between this film and, and la la land yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, i definitely remember like uh, the first pool scene where there's an incredible like dolly behind and the characters are kind of moving uh, to uh, different compositions as the camera is uh, dollying backwards. Uh, it just uh, this choreography that goes on in that scene is quite incredible for a second time filmmaker, I think. Yeah. And there's so many examples in the film. Yeah. Where I, like I said, I, when I saw that this was actually a second film, I was completely blown away because shadows is, is really rough as we said. Mm-hmm. So I think it's incredible. It, it it just it feels like you know a little bit like a noir director who's been doing it for thirty years and is you know at the top of his game. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty impressive. You know? And also um, uh, another scene uh, in that bar uh, in Nick's bar where they are playing pool and those two guys who they end up fighting. It's kind mm-hmm. of it's kind of a long scene that just it builds and builds and contains some really like impressive dramaturgic uh, choreography where the intensity just is just palpable until it kind of blasts off the uh, just when you feel that things are about to die down it it kind of uh, exploits yeah uh, he uses the positioning of the of the characters there to really strong effect mm-hmm. you know you kind of see the the jazz musicians as they're being viewed by the the thugs as kind of like you know these distant self-contained unit that at first they're kind of the distance between them kind of seems to grow for me. Like mm-hmm. they, they were closer when they gave him the wine and then as Benny poisons them against them, they kind of get farther and farther apart. And then they kind of are thrust into the middle with the drinking competition. And, and you, you, like you said, the tension's just building and you're kind of like right on top of them. Mm. And then it's like, Oh, Oh, what's going to happen? Something's clearly going to happen. This is going to go wrong. And then there's that beat yeah. of like, oh, okay, Oh, okay. And then everything. Yeah. No, ex- <laughs> extremely well done. Yeah. <laughs> but I love, I love how, like, it feels like Cassavetes is um, his independent spirit almost. That that type of handheld approach, that type of um, the human dramas and all those uh, very uh, bizarre feelings that we all have. That's kind of what he goes in for. Uh, the. Um, the masculine ideals that he's dealing with throughout the film. I love how in that scene, it basically all comes to uh, a peak almost. Oh, absolutely. And 
you could spend quite a lot of time analyzing sort of what he thinks about what the characters are doing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of interesting things to think about there. But yeah, totally. It's it's the again, the character of Ghost not particularly well liked, but he's also uh, do you feel, you know, do, by you, I mean, does the audience feel like relatable to what he does sort of mm-hmm. after the fight, relatable to what he does during the fight, you know? And I think certainly during the fight, I think that's pretty pretty relatable to me. I'm not trying to punch someone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Bobby Darren, this is his first non-singing role. Right. Um, and he was harshly criticized at the time of release. Uh, and the film overall got a general poor reception, I think. But it's a brave role for him to take on. Yeah, especially, you know, yeah, absolutely. Like he, he's he's willing to be not particularly heroic, Mm -hmm. right? Like he's not, he's not, like you said, he's not really like a, I mean, he has kind of one moment of, you could call it heroism when he, the way he deals with uh, her advances when they first go back to her house after the uh, first party. Yeah. That you could deconstruct that as well, but we'll say that that's a moment of, of, of heroism. (laughs) But after that, I mean, he's, fairly possessive fairly jealous uh uh you know has a super toxic idea of his own masculinity mm-hmm. it, it feels like he's betrayed himself lashes out at someone who loves him who only wants to protect him right like mm. uh lashes out at the people that are making his career possible uh has this idealism that's founded in very little to be honest with you yeah. I, I kind of agree with benny when he when he calls him a phony in the in the dressing room mm. I mean, he's not this kind of finger-snapping, fast jazz hipster, but he's, especially in that fighting scene, he becomes like an incredibly vulnerable, uh, downtrodden, egotistic man, basically. Uh, My my issue with Bobby Darren is in those scenes where the drama is really uh, cranked up a notch, and I feel like... There is something lacking there. It becomes a bit too flat for me. Uh, and there is kind of a sense of mystery or uh, allure that I don't feel is present with him to make me want to find out more about him. Um, mm. But I do I, I do kind of understand... Um, I do feel that he, ha- he certainly pulls off the camaraderie between the jazz musicians and he, do, he does pull off that... Um, that kind of um, inflated sense of self-worth. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I think that that's where, and I, so just to clarify what I said earlier, mm. um, I just don't think Montgomery Clift was the right guy. No. <laughs> because for one thing, he's way too good looking. Uh, I, you know, Bobby Darren, not an unattractive guy, but not not a matinee idol looking guy, right? Mm. And I think that that is helpful because it's sort of, explains some of the dynamic between him and the fellow band members and the woman mm-hmm. who is, you know, Stella Stevens is stunningly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and he's clearly completely enraptured by that as much as he claims that he's, you know, seeing her for more than that or whatever. He, he clearly, he's just completely, uh, almost like intoxicated with her, her appearance. Right. Yeah. And then ad- additionally, he just kind of has this a uh, little bit like, like, and I think it's probably just that he's not that great of an actor, but he just kind of has this bumbliness to him mm-hmm. that where it's like he, he, he kind of, it just fits into the, the character for me more. Yeah. Uh, it's just, he's kind of like, he's a little guy and he's a little bit like, he just has this look on his face, like a little dopey There's kind of all the time. Like juvenile uh, about his appearance. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. so he doesn't, he doesn't feel, you know, like the big strong guy that he, from his band, you know. He feels he feels much more. He doesn't feel like James Dean Little, which is sort of where mm-hmm. my Montgomery Cliff kind of fits in. He doesn't feel like I'm kind of like the scrappy little guy. He feels kind of doughy in a way, yeah, and and kind of childish and 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 a little bit like self-absorbed. You know, kind of helps with the self-absorbed nature of his personality that he kind of has an overinflated, like you said, uh, view of himself and his position in this scenario. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think it really works well for that. There are moments where we definitely leave his range. Mm-hmm. And there are conversations that he has where I'm, I was a little bit like, oh, okay. You know? 
Um, so certainly I'm not suggesting that, you know, Bobby Darren revelation, certainly not. Hmm. But, um, but I do think that, that, that he had the right kind of vibe for the, for the character. Yeah. And I don't think it doesn't pull me out of the movie uh, in any sort of way, but, uh, perhaps with a greater range and more nuance, um, I would have been a bit more engaged, but, um, he certainly doesn't uh, do away with himself in any sort. So um, another, I sorry, I think that's fair. Yeah, um, but someone who, for me, like stole the show basically is Stella Stevens as Jess Princess Polanski. Oh yes, um, the introduction of her character Jess it kind of represents the demise of Ghost and the band in my eyes, and she becomes this kind of catalyst and causing mayhem between uh, Ghost and the band and Ghost and Benny, the agent. Um, and I don't know, it isn't like a conscious effort, but it's, it's a result of her um, destructive beauty and also kind of an insecure attachment style where she seems, she seems drawn to men who seek to uh, dominate her uh, and she wants it and yet kind of resents that dominating aspect of the man. Yeah, she is quite an actually quite a complex character, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it's it's fascinating. You know, she does represent I completely agree with you. She represents the the moment of destruction for the band in a way that would be pretty much impossible for Ghost to know because I don't think at least I didn't know, maybe you did when when she was uh, at the party with with Benny, I didn't realize that they were supposed to be that they had been dating, right? That sort of was came out to me when that, they were who, in the bar. Uh, who had been dating? That uh, that uh, princess and uh, and Benny had yeah, been dating. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, and and of course he's the one who kind of poisons the the situation in the bar, mm-hmm. right? To get kind of get back at Ghost at that mm-hmm. point. <clears throat> so, in that sense, I don't think Ghost could have known. Uh, what he was doing and the impact it would have. But, but yeah, I do think, you know, that the, the conversations with her, like, especially that, that first one, when they're back at her place and she's sort of just explaining to him, like what she sees her sort of position in her life as, Mm -hmm. you know, she ends up in the movie as a prostitute. Right. But she was Mm -hmm. kind of a prostitute at this point as well in her own mind. Yeah. Right. So uh, she felt like she's trading the only thing that anyone cared about her about, which is her body and her sexuality Mm. for someone to protect her. And even then, you know, Benny's trying to make her a star or whatever at the beginning, but she seems fairly uninterested in that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like she doesn't want to go up there and sing. She doesn't she doesn't seem like she doesn't seem like this starlet who like when he's in the dressing room later with that other client of his, Mm. the other lady, she seems like this is a client they may be dating as well doesn't matter but this seems like a woman who has ambitions wants to go somewhere uh stella steven's character doesn't really seem that way to me like she doesn't seem like she's really interested in benny being her agent and in fact his domination of her there and he's you know telling her all these mean things and being truly terrible to her Hmm. doesn't really seem to be like encouraging her in any Hmm. kind of useful way either right so um i mean and then Go ahead. No, I think she comes across as this. There is this self-destruction in her character as well as in uh, Bobby Darren's character, where you you can we the audience, or, or at least I I think I, you can see the sorrow on her face uh, throughout the scenes. But uh, the ones around her, the ones who surround her, all they see is that surface beauty, really. And none of them really get to know her character or see beyond that beauty. Um, and she seems to pine for um, that kind of self-worth or acceptance and assurance, but not in terms of popularity, but in terms of something that is actual acceptance and actual assurance. Yeah, she wants to... She wants. But it's all, but it's it's internal in a lot of ways yes. because even when uh, this guy you know tells her that I, you know I view you as a as a as a person and worthwhile she's not she doesn't view herself that way so it doesn't mm-hmm. really it, it helps in some sense he's in sort of a nicer 
at least for a very brief time, he's a nicer kind of situation. She's starting to realize, oh, maybe maybe someone out there would treat me nicely or whatever. And then, of course, no. But yeah. um, but it's internal to her because she does not believe. She's like, I'm the dumb one, don't you know? You know what's the 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 quote from the the poster of the movie? Don't you understand? All I can do is what I know best. You know, yeah. Like she she and really, if you look at the at the poster for this film, it, it's very clear that she is the sort of central story of the film in a lot of ways right like her like you said this this sort of combination of self-destruction and and longing for something i mean i i I mentioned uh to you before we started the episode that i saw sort of saw this as a almost like a kenji mizuguchi film in that way that it's a Mm -hmm. you could view the entire film as the story of one sort of fallen woman as she's falling right Mm -hmm. um because her position in the in the in the story changes dramatically over the course of the film as well yeah I mean, she, when she gets what she wants, her kind of insecurities and her the, the defensive aspects of her kind of pushes them away in that she doesn't really deserve it, she feels. Uh, that she thinks, or her view of herself, as you said, is like a, um, a broken child. And when she gets what she deserves, uh, it's... I don't know if she, it seems like she can't accept it. So she has to, uh, she has to push it away. She has to be what she views herself instead of what she really needs to be, really. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, I think also we need to remember that the time period here is super compressed. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that too, because like he, I think like almost everything that happens in the sort of happy middle part of the movie is one day. Like the, when they're at, mm. they go to the park and then they go, you know, that whole kind of dating period up until like, I think that they're at Nick's bar, like the same night that they were playing in the park. Maybe it's the next day. Mm. It's not, it's not a long period of time. Right. Okay. And so in that sense, I think both of them are very, uh, relationship in a bottle, relationship microwavable, you know, it's like mm-hmm. very quick. And so it kind of helps explain like she doesn't. She hasn't had time to like get any kind of sense of security with this guy or sort of use the space of his uh, better treatment or whatever it is to kind of like figure out a little bit more about who she wants to be. She hasn't really grown or had any chance to grow and arguable whether she could with him anyway. But but like when 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 he turns on her, that's I think that's why she immediately is just like, okay no. Because it's been like five minutes, right? So she's yeah. like, well, okay, this was all actually a lie and it was everything I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I didn't actually think of uh, the time aspects of the film, but uh, when you mention it now, uh, I could totally see it. It is kind of like they they played for the empty chairs and then they played baseball and then they got into a fight. So. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So she had a nice afternoon and then, oh, okay. Oh. You know. <laughs> Back on Tinder. Oh, well. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Back on Tinder. <laughs> that would be a very if they remade this today, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but Benny, uh, he is another character that I also find very interesting. I mean, the character looks like and acts like Joe Pesci and Emilio Estevez's child. I think. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a sleazy agent, but he plays it with such incredibly flair i think uh, and he's one of the favorite smaller parts of the film uh, along with the other band member that you were talking about that i can't remember the name of for the life of me i think it's that. tommy tommy yeah i think yeah i think it's tommy yeah, yeah so the guy who played the benny was is like a nobody right i mean I, I don't, everett I don't chambers i think his name was yeah but he didn't do much else right no, he didn't... i don't think so no and he yeah he is pretty perfect for that part i mean he just he really does have that combination of sort of sleazy uh, but also, you know, turning, keeping it to himself, doing his job, you know, obviously he seems to be a relatively good agent, mm-hmm. but questionable human being. And then he kind of has one, yeah, one of my favorite moments in the film. It sounds like it was also one of your favorite moments when they, when, um, when, when he confronts a ghost about being kind of a fraud and yeah. kind of tells him exactly where his life has kind of gone and, and kind of, he's the one who punctures the man child. Uh, belief that ghost has in his own overwhelming brilliance right mm. just like no dude <laughs> like, what does he say what does he say there, there's a hundred guys out there playing what you're playing and 99 of them could play it better yeah 
It's <laughs> like, wow. It's a pretty damning. Uh, yeah, tell me how you were. Uh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you were talking about um, when we were speaking about uh, like Bobby Darren's uh, or his character's uh, musical chops. Um, you were talking about how you kind of preferred his. Uh, should we call it sell-up music or his compromise music? <laughs> the music he plays in the in the swank, what is it? What do they call it? Swanky downtown spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, everyone in the film basically acts like the music that the song that he was going to record for uh, the record company is like at least, if not amazing, at least sort of interesting, mm. right? And then the song, the music that he's playing in the in the nightclub is like, why are you even bothering, right? Mm. And but for me, the 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 when the film starts and it's like, okay, it's a jazz film with almost entirely, you know, European American characters. It, you know, so it's it like La La Land, it's a, a jazz film that's not about African Americans, right? Hmm. Um and um or Jewish Americans or whatever. And so it, it's like and they start playing immediately and I'm like, of course. It's like the smoothest, softest, you know, Kenny G jazz. <laughs> imaginable it's like this extremely cool jazz uh very cheesy you know kind of vibe to it yeah very you know top 40 radio jazz Mm -hmm. uh there's really nothing challenging about what they're playing and then the most challenging thing is that this singer doesn't use words Mm -hmm. right like which is not like i mean she gets that from the african-american guy who's scat singing yeah right that's where she kind of gets that idea so there's not a lot of like to me. I mean, I, by the end of the movie, I actually kind of did enjoy that song. I like that they call it blues. By the way, that's especially hilarious. But uh, <laughs> they they they're just these very compromised characters to begin with. To me, I mean, I think there's a whole other critique of this film on sort of the the like uh, attitudes of sort of uh, uh, European jazz people and. Uh, uh, you know, their attitude towards the music and what the mm-hmm. point of it is and all this kind of stuff. And so they're playing this and then he gets into the club and he's just kind of playing like like a nice like improvised. Well, the other thing too is that I don't think there's any improvisa- improvisation in the work that they're doing, mm-hmm. which, you know, as I said on the first episode of my podcast, improvisation is not technically required for something to be jazz, but it is. it does tend to be the most sort of consistently common element in all jazz music that there's some amount of improvisation mm-hmm. and... Uh, th- there does not seem to be any here, and then, but then when he's in the he's in the club, he's actually kind of comping and listening and kind of, you know, making chords and working with his accompanists and kind of playing something. It's not amazing, certainly. Um, you know, as they say, he's not Art Tatum, which mm-hmm. is very true. But it's it's at least jazz to, to me. It's yeah. at least something I would recognizably call it, you know sort of something interesting jazz. So I was like, oh man, this actually sounds pretty good. And then I thought that before they said. Oh, you've lost it. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, oh man, okay. <laughs> All right. You know, and then, you know, at the end, you know, they're back to playing the same kind of smarmy, fancy yeah. nonsense that they were playing before. So, <laughs> so from that perspective, I yeah, I I don't know. I liked I don't know. What did you think of the music? Um well, kind of um Fittingly, I don't think it, I really noticed it that much. Uh, that that scene in the club that you're talking about, I don't think the music I was paying attention to uh, at that point uh, in the film. Um, Makes sense. And I mean, up until that point, uh, I it it did come across as I don't know uh, the usual kind of jazz soundtrack that I would hear in in a film. Uh, nothing that I would hear on a Coltrane album or a Miles Davis album or something that, you know, has a more like spontaneous nature to it, I think. Yeah. But even, and even not something at the levels of say an elevator to the gallows with Miles Davis or even shadows with Charles Minkus, right. Mm -hmm. Where a lot more interesting, like the, the, the music for this one was primarily done, I think by, by Benny Carter. Is he like a famous, uh, jazz musician or. He is. Yes. Very famous. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I never heard of him actually. So, well, you'll have to wait until we get to the uh, uh, era where he was, you know, recording music. Okay, so <laughs> which in is in twenty-five years. That is <laughs> <laughs> twenty-five uh, uh, podcast years. Uh, podcast 25, years. Uh, 
<laughs> I will see if I make it. He started showing up in like the 50s. We'll see if I make it all, all the way there. Right now, it seems like a very far away way. Yeah. But um, yeah. So, the, but but I think that so he he there there actually were quite a few legitimate jazz musicians who played. Like the the, the other thing I noticed right when the movie started was that none of those actors were playing anything. Mm-hmm. Right. Like mm-hmm. that. It was like that there were saxophone and trumpet sound. I mean, I played trumpet and I'm like watching this guy. And I'm like, nothing you're doing. is. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and most of them were kind of studio musicians. But the I think that the score was actually written by a composer. Mm-hmm. Right. So they were playing a very scored version of it anyway. And that's OK. I'm not. That's fine. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, it just wasn't. It's just interesting. I always find it really interesting in a film when someone is supposed to be a uh, exceptionally good at something. Uh, if the work that they're producing in the film to me does not seem exceptionally good, then you have to wonder, is that intentional or not? So especially in a film like this where a lot of it is this idea that this ghost Wakefield guy, uh, Bobby Darren's character, is super idealist, right? I believe in my music, man, and you're not going to tell me how to play my music. And we're we're not like those phonies. We're playing some real music here. We're doing something. And then his music is pretty terrible. It's like, is that? And then he gets called out as a phony. Like, is that intentional? Right? Like, are we supposed to see this as sort of a middle, yeah. middle of the road mid jazz group that are not going to make it? Kinda, probably, right? You could you could argue that um, it even adds a layer to it that he isn't really that good, but he just his own ego and his own tastes are poor, basically. Yeah, because if he had been truly phenomenally, because I think we, you know, it's like with uh, with um, Stella Stevens' character actually mm-hmm. kind of ties that she's so incredibly beautiful that she get, gets away in a sense, in a destructive sense, and in a not healthy for her sense, and in a not healthy for our society sense, mm. she gets given a lot of leeway in certain areas, right? And then not at all in others. I mean, she has the re, the relationship of everyone else in the film to her is predicated on the fact that she is just, I mean, she, she even says it like, you know, if I didn't look like this, you yeah. know, would you, would you even be, what would we be doing right now? Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think the same thing is true for him. If he was, if he was in, incandescently talented, if he was truly like Art Tatum, then I think, uh, his prima donna nature and his sort of like flights of, whatever all the things he goes through would be handled very very differently by the people around him Mm. which is probably not a good thing yeah definitely not a good thing in society but i think in the context of the movie it's sort of interesting yeah uh kind of paints uh the non-flattering picture of the musical business that we kind of expect i think absolutely yeah it is Mm -hmm. a harsh world and it is an unjust world uh, especially within the music industry so (laughs) <laughs> yes indeed and they do a pretty good job it's not too it's almost over the top but it's not quite too over the top with the record executive guy uh, yeah <laughs> it's on was, the edge it's on the edge uh i mean especially the scene where, or when he kind of does a 180 within 10 seconds yes. uh i of, was just, yeah that's a little bit much. <laughs> it's a little bit much um <laughs> But it's, um, and the other guy's just playing with the room the whole time. It's kind yeah. of... <laughs> I mean, did he like it more because Ghost wasn't playing at that moment? I do wonder. I did think about that. Yeah. I'm like, what if he sits down? Wouldn't it be great if he sits down at the piano? He's like, wait a minute. No, no, not liking this again. <laughs> Another thing that is, I mean, it is a bit heavy handed that a whole prostitution versus artistic independence theme that yeah. also goes up. It is very like front and center, but I don't know. There are a few scenes where you feel like it is a bit too staged and a bit too conceited of sorts. But uh, you have then these other scenes which are so full of like vitality and spontaneity and you have this warmth that kind of exudes. So for me, it's a very mixed but uh, also interesting bag that we have here. So Yeah, I... I I really actually I loved the film. Um, I I think we you know it's it's always easy to kind of nitpick all these different things and they're all totally mm-hmm. true. But I want to kind of I do want to make the point that it, I mean this is not you know this is not an unassailable masterpiece. I'm sure by any stretch of the imagination there are many you know rough edges. But I just really like loved watching it. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. Right, like it was it was 
it, it had like a cool sort of noir feel like I think I mentioned this before like noir vibe to it it's not obviously it's not about uh any kind of gangster thing or any of the typical sort of noir plot lines that it's not actually a noir film but it it has kind of that 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 late night cool jazzy almost like a little bit like um like sweet smell of success have you seen that movie uh yes uh, yeah love that so film. it's got that I love that film. I love that film. So this is not, this is like maybe a homeless person's sweet smell of success, <laughs> right? But it's not, it's not at that level of, of incredible, but I just really, really enjoyed it. Mm. And the, you know, the Cassavetes sort of vibe came through strongly. Mm. And I, I, I will say I was, my feelings on it were, were very much determined by the ending, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Like I always find it fascinating when I'm like waiting for a film to end to decide how much I like it, and it could go really dramatically different ways depending on how it ends. Mm. Right, like where it's like if they ruin, if they if they mess up this ending, <laughs> uh, it goes strongly the other way, right? Because uh, the ending. Go ahead. Uh, no, the ending. I mean, it certainly determines what type of message you feel that he is sending, or what type yeah, so, of feel that he wants us to leave with. So. So what did you take from the ending? I took that. I mean, um, there are several things which I think are conflicting. In one way, it, it does feel a little bit too neat, a little bit too wrapped up. But in another sense, you also don't get any type of real closure to the film. So there's um, it was kind of an ambiguous feeling, which I think is good. But I do think that he could have been, uh, or I, I did wish that he could have been a bit more... Uh, rough around the edges in, in terms of the, how the story wrapped up, um, leaving Bobby Darren and uh, Jess kind of dancing to this uh, gathered group where everyone are friends. Uh, I don't know. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think that the band got back together at the no, end? No, uh, I don't. And I don't think uh, he and uh, Jess got back together either. So, Yeah, so that's, that's really interesting because I think that you could... Yeah, I, I think I agree with you, mm -hmm. uh, but I do find it interesting to think about like even if, let's say that the that the power of her, of you know bringing them back together in that sense, and they're sing she's singing and they're playing and they're remembering that they quote unquote had something you know with this group. Let's say that they were to get back together. Yeah, the studio would, version. Yeah, what do you think they would last another week? Like I mean, <laughs> like like the 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 destructive seeds are none of the inherent conflicts have been resolved right mm -hmm. like benny's uh sorry ghost is still a, a jackass and <laughs> the band still hates him and she's still a mess right she just she was literally just contemplating suicide yeah. you know an hour earlier in in real in movie world time you know mm -hmm. so like even if even if they get back together which i don't think yeah i mean they were pretty not happy to see him they, there's no indication that they were like yeah let's let's get the gang back to it. so okay so if they had been if it had all been like he gets the girl the band gets together and they cut a record i would have hated this <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i feel like that's that's the compromise that the scene inherits where that's the studio's wishes and casavetes he has that other more the negative view of the story in terms right and so they come maybe this was his way of saying listen you now the fans can think that that it all worked out if yeah. that's what they want to do you know but i think that in leaving it this ambiguous really sometimes i feel like an ambiguous ending is just annoying mm -hmm. uh, and i think that maybe you were closer to that it sounds like you were closer to that take on this film but i certainly would have appreciated um because i felt that it it kind of stood out in terms of what i come before uh, in terms of the conflicts, in terms of her uh, kind of suicide attempt. Uh, mm. And suddenly mm -hmm. all that were kind of brushed away and we're left with them dancing. So, Yeah, so I, I totally get that. I, for me, I feel like I felt I, uh, it was it was like she's super unhappy that they're there, mm -hmm. right? But she's going to sing anyway. Mm -hmm. And they're super unhappy he's there, but they've got to keep playing because they're playing for this crowd and, you know, they liked her. I, I don't know. I, I felt like it was a really interesting moment where, like we said, nothing was resolved. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but at some point, I don't know. It's just like, what do you do at this point, right? Like, yeah. he's not going to walk away. She's not going to. So you just kind of play this song. And, and I don't know what happens when the band stops playing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think any of them do either. Mm -hmm. So that, that sort of works for me. It's like, 
the characters have no idea what comes next either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't feel like, like you said, I don't feel like they're committed to, to you know, making this work or, or yeah. anything like that at all. I think it's just like this moment in time. Uh, and I mean, Ghost's life is pretty broken. Like they, yeah, <laughs> you know, they're kind of everyone's wondering like, I mean, what he will be up to after this. Yeah, the, the, in, in many ways, Benny comes out the best, right? The agent, mm-hmm. but the the band at least they have a gig. I mean, I I, I don't know. I, I don't. I mean, they were playing to nobody in a park, right? So yeah. the everyone kind of it's it's really just about like a, a destruct the power of a destructive moment and 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 this like grenade of this woman being tossed into their midst and. And I think that it's you don't I'm not blaming her because I think they were going to fall prey to all of these things regardless. I think this was just kind of where their trajectory was going as well with him and everything else. It is sort of interesting. It's just like this moment of explosion and then and just kind of the wreckage left behind. I I, I don't want to oversell. I mean, this is not, you know, this is the movie is what it is. I really enjoyed watching it, but that doesn't I don't uh, look at these films in terms of like rating them in terms of quality. I just really enjoyed watching it. Yeah, absolutely. And it is. I mean, even though I wasn't uh, overly enthused, uh, it is definitely an interesting watch, and you you're not bored for a single minute. I think, and you're certainly right. interested in what is going to happen. So, yeah, and I was probably a little more you know inclined to enjoy it than you, just because of the jazz connection and things mm-hmm. like that. That that did a lot for me, and then just really Stella Stevens just killed it. <laughs> just just I really want to go see more of her work. Like she was. Certainly a revelation, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you watch the Olive film uh, version of this, or do you have the Master Cinema? Or? Neither. Um, I think the transfer I saw was the Olive film version. I did uh, rent it from Amazon. Okay. Uh, so I didn't get to see any special features, which I would love to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Olive doesn't usually have special features, right? Yeah, that's true. They're usually bare bones. Yeah, except for the like the new the new um, what's it called the new uh, signature series that they have. I have a few of those, and those are pretty nice. But I think this, yeah, I don't think this has any kind of. What does the Master of Cinema one have? The Master of Cinema disc it has an interview. I just checked the Olive one, and there's nothing. It's pretty, and the cover is horrific. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! The cover for Master of Cinema isn't all too great either, actually. But I'm gonna go take a look at that. Oh, that is horrible. That is a shame. That is not great. I mean, that's a critique we've uttered many a times on the show where they <laughs> usually just use the poster and they don't do anything like interesting with it. So They didn't even use the poster. Or if they did, it's not the main poster. This is It's kind of cool. a cropped version of the poster. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, God. And yeah. the, just a random type. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, not, not, not great. But uh, in terms of the, um, the extras, there's a, an interview with uh, the critic David Cairns. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it lasts about 18 minutes where he talks about the themes of the film uh, and kind of how it works with um, Cassavetes' own personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also uh, a booklet, a 52-page booklet. Um, I didn't watch the interview this time around. I think I watched this film when it came out about, I think it was a couple of years ago now. Um, but not this time around. Uh, so uh, I don't really remember it all too well, but uh, I think it is uh, quite uh, illuminating. So, yeah, I need to track that down. See the see the the interview because I do want to learn a little more. Fifty two pages is a pretty serious booklet, especially in these days of Criterion uh, cutting down. Yeah, leaflets. Yeah, yeah four page poster or something. <laughs> exactly. I've been very careful not to get into collecting masters of cinema <laughs> just because i know what will happen to my life yes uh you do have the advantage of it's not as big a series right there's like a hundred and something there is 160 something i think now we're up to or 170 so yeah so certainly a much more approachable size of collection yeah it was one of the alluring sides to uh starting this podcast actually knowing that it was uh, <laughs> kind of manageable but uh yeah it's still uh, a large investment. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, it's fun, right? That's, yeah. the, that's the point. It's fun. No, there's the, the thing is, Master of Cinema does have quite a few films that I don't think Criterion's ever going to get that it's just such a shame. Mm-hmm. You know, things like like Wings, for example, or, or uh, um, uh, Metropolis or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. There's some stuff that I just don't think we're ever going to see here. And, and it's I'm jealous. <laughs> but... Um... I mean, um, there are certainly many things that Master Cinema will never get hold of. Uh, things like the, um, 
BFI would get older, like the Napoleon film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I would rather just buy the Napoleon film than wait for it to come on Master Cinema. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, luckily, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt me as a consumer that uh, other companies are releasing films. <laughs> certainly adds to the troubles rather <laughs> yeah no it's 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 only a thing if you're like you know the the if you're doing a project like mine right mm-hmm. so whenever a film gets announced on criterion that that i'm really excited about um it, it's just like oh and i get to you know i have to do something with this right yeah, yeah like yeah. obviously other films being available is wonderful but uh, when a film i'm really uh, love or excited about gets included in Criterion, then it's like, okay, well, I know it's going to be on my shelf because I'm a completionist and I know I'm going to eventually write about it. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, it's similarly, if there's a movie that you would love to podcast about mm-hmm. exactly, and then yeah. Master of Cinema announces it, you're like, yes, I get to, this is awesome. I get to do this. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was, so. I, I was really hoping for Napoleon uh, because there was talks about um, when that new transfer was floating around. Mm. Uh, I was kind of secretly hoping that they would get it, but uh, alas. <laughs> I think my number one like that is uh, you have Man with a Movie Camera, which I yeah. love that movie mm-hmm. so much. And you know, it's already out. it came out on Flickr Alley here, which is wonderful. The, I have that disc and it's brilliant, but it's like not Criterion, right? So, yeah. sort of a shame for me. Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's uh, kind of let us know what's uh, next for your podcast and for yourself? Yeah. So uh, as I sort of mentioned briefly earlier, I'm transitioning into 1918 with the next episode of the podcast. So that's exciting. Uh, You know, there were two episodes for 1917. I think there's going to be roughly two episodes for 1918. We're in this period where I can kind of make a little headway quickly because there wasn't that much uh, recorded jazz Mm -hmm. going on. There's a lot of jazz happening, but because my show really focuses on the recordings and not... um, not just sort of you have to pick some kind of limiting thing because otherwise mm-hmm. it's just too big. Right? So um, at least at the moment that that's helpful. So the next episode is about a guy named Wilbur Sweatman. And then there'll be one sort of more grab baggy type episode like we had for 1917. And then, yeah. then we'll move forward from there. So I'm um, we are sort of getting near the end of the part that I've done all the research for. So that's getting a little scary. I'm trying <laughs> to <laughs> get ahead. I, I read quite a lot of books and, and things for this podcast. So got to kind of keep up with that. Um and and then also I'm trying to bank a bunch of episodes because I will be gone for quite a long time this summer and fall. I'm going on a pretty epic uh, four-month trip, so that's exciting mm. uh, for me personally. Other than that, uh, yeah, just um, watching the Criterion films, writing about them on my site, occasionally participating in things like this. Thank you so much, by the way. This was super fun. It's been a pleasure. Um, and just, you know, uh, doing what, I, what I'm doing. Yeah, so the Jazz Podcast, uh, you can check that out at a history of jazz.com or find a history of jazz on iTunes or overcast or wherever it is. You listen to podcasts. Um, there's a Facebook page. Now there's a Twitter account at, uh, uh jazz history pod. Uh, there's, there's, I'm trying, uh, there's a YouTube channel. If you like watching them, if you like watching the cover, some people apparently like listening to podcasts on YouTube. Hmm. Um, I didn't know, uh, that, but I, why not? Right. There's a, Oh, and there's a, a Spotify playlist for the show. There's one total one. I th- there currently there's one for each episode. I think I might get rid of those, but there's one Spotify playlist where I'm adding all of the music. So, uh, you know, on the show, I obviously only play pretty excerpted uh, tracks. But if you want to hear all the jazz I'm playing, um, it's all it's all on the Spotify playlist. Mm. So, how difficult is it to find these like early recordings? So far, I've been pretty lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that's helpful is that when I can't find them, I just say, okay, I'm, <laughs> I don't have to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Which so far hasn't uh, hasn't got me into a situation where there's something I really need to talk about, but you can't find it. No, um, it's been pretty okay. Uh, the 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 trickiest bit is sort of finding uh, uh, versions that were recorded without doing a lot of like um, modern recording upgrades to them. Hmm. You know, I want them to sound like what people would have heard then, yeah. and not sort of like a remastered version. So that's a little bit tricky. But yeah, uh, I will say. Um, so far, pretty much everything's been on Spotify, which is incredible. But when I, I have played some stuff that's not on Spotify, it tends to be on YouTube or or uh, at the Library of Congress and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, so far, so good. Uh, we'll see what happens when we get into uh, eras where there's commercial interest. So at this point, all the music I'm playing is probably in the public domain, mm-hmm. right? Like it's old, long enough ago and all the companies are gone and it, it wasn't necessarily um, – it doesn't have a lot of current commercial uh, appeal. So yeah. when we get into stuff where there may be rights issues and things like that, it could get a little hairier. But so far, it's been yeah, not too bad. Yeah, 
Nice. It's been certainly excellent to listen to. So keep up the good work oh, there. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been harder to find the books, uh, a lot of out-of-print books. So. Mm-hmm. But luckily, Ryan works at a very good bookstore in Portland. Oh, that has nice. connections. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's great. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been uh, a pleasure talking to you. And uh, it's certainly an interesting uh, discussion about Too Late Blues. So. Uh, thank you. It was my pleasure. What a, what a fun, what a great time. Thank you so much. Great. Um, and listener, you can catch us on moccast.blogspot.com or search for Master Cinema Cast on uh, just about every social media you're on. So, uh, and send us an email on uh, moc underscore cast at gmail.com if you have any comments or questions or any other sorts. So uh, thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>